Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are expanding on last week's conversation about the Devonian period, what the plants were doing, and specifically what the climate was doing and how different that was from previous expectations. But we're taking a different twist on the subject today. We are joined by Dr. Jeff Banka, who has been on this podcast in the past to talk about paleobotanical reconstructions and what it takes to bring an extinct plant and really an extinct ecosystem so alien to our own alive in the world of art. Learning about his process is absolutely fascinating, and it just goes to show you how much can be gained from an in-depth study and an artistic representation of plants in the ecosystems they once lived in. Before we get to that, I just want to say, if you are enjoying this podcast, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. I cannot do this podcast without the support of my patrons, and I thank everyone who has supported it each and every month thus far. So if you would like to ensure that this show has a future, consider becoming a patron today. But I don't want to keep you from this amazing topic any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jeff Banka. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jeff Banco, welcome back to the podcast. It is always so great to talk with you. But for those that haven't listened to every previous episode of this podcast and heard the few that you've been on, start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Banka. I'm an experimental paleobotanist, so someone who tries to basically do paleo myth busting with ancient <laughs> plants. And I do a lot of work in horticultural research, too. But um I love anything that basically is is absolutely bizarre, strange, and perplexing in the fossil record that has to do with plants or arthropods and such. And I do a lot of work with mass extinctions as well. But today, we'll, we'll, I'm happy to talk about some of the other things I do with uh, botanical illustration and um, reconstructing and breathing life into these ancient sort of alien organisms. Right on. Yeah, it's a a fantastic world and you are such a great proponent for it. But, you know, you also dabble in the alien that currently exists. And and a lot of the stuff that you look at in the fossil record at least has some, I guess, congeners would be one word to use in the modern. And that seems to be a lot of where your interest in horticulture is currently. I mean, if you follow you on Instagram or any social media account, you're posting really cool salaginellas and lycopods. I mean, you really dabble in the lesser loved plant world (laughs) yeah absolutely i've always been fascinated since childhood and trying to sort of uh i guess champion the 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 underdogs and whatever i'm interested in so i I grew up loving creepy crawlies so i always was i I could probably be put in front of a lamp post and try to convince it for 45 (laughs) minutes that a cockroach is worth your time to go observe and there's (laughs) beauty in them you know and i'd still come out happy without a response from that lamp post (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I do the same thing with plants. So if it doesn't have a flower, no flowers, no problem. Yeah, man. it's You, you got to love them because really they do in many ways represent not only the unloved, but what early days of plants sort of looked like. I'm not going to say they're direct descendants in some cases, in a lot of cases. But yeah, the lycopods, the selaginellas, there's so much beauty in them. And you managed to capture that beauty that, again, most people would go, oh, it's not a flower. That's boring. Thank you. I I try my best. But yeah, they really do. 
when when I was when I've been working with them and spending years sort of just meticulously trying to develop ways to grow them, I just have seen a, a level of beauty in these plants that's very just was unexpected to me. Mm. When I you know as a kid, I I was always leafing through like textbooks and stuff and seeing pictures of these things, and it wasn't until I got a little older and got to start seeing them in college that. I was like, whoa, these plants almost, I mean, a lot of them almost are luminous. They almost glow to you if you know what to look for. And a lot of field botanists will probably be able to identify with that too. Um, But these qualities are rarely, you know, oftentimes we'd see in photographs and in in depictions, these qualities just never got translated. Mm. And yeah, I really wanted to sit out to try and change that bit by bit as I do. Right on. And so, you know, age old question what came first? Was it the love of the fossils, the love of the plants or drawing? I mean, obviously a lot can kind of happen in tandem, but how did it all kind of culminate into this mix of talents you've, you've cultivated over the years? That's a great question, actually. So like, uh, if I think about it, it would have had to have been the drawing came first before Mm -hmm. everything else. Because when I was, when I was really young, I actually was deaf. Uh, before I could speak. So I had a series of ear infections that just were not diagnosed because I couldn't speak yet. And so I I didn't hear for almost almost at least a year when I was supposed to be starting to speak and interact with people. So during this time that I just wasn't really able to interact with the world very well, and I guess, you know, older folks just didn't understand what was going on, I learned how to draw. Hmm. And so I taught myself to draw by observing things around me. So by like the age of three, I was doing shading and foreshadowing and things like that. Um, But I couldn't speak yet. So, so drawing was sort of my medium for interacting with the world. In a way, I could hear music a little bit at that age, probably, um, but not much more. And so the drawing really was something I just was always doing. And it was always this way of how can I capture, you know, the really the beautiful things that I see around me as as best I can and represent them. Hmm. And so so that was probably the first thing. But then came, I think, um, I always had loved dinosaurs and and natural history and the fossil record. Like, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of kids do. I mean, not everyone, of course. Sure. But but I really was obsessed with the dinos and, and that world. And it eventually evolved into creepy crawlies and animals. But Really, I didn't get into lycopods and sort of the ancient plants until high school. Hmm. And that was when I started. I think I actually can remember I did a basically like a, a science report on how coal is formed. <laughs> and I started flipping through these books and I was like, oh, this is some really cool stuff. <laughs> and at that point, I just got hooked and I was like, I got to try growing this. This is neat. And yeah, spent a, my whole college and grad school growing these things and drawing them at the same time. Nice. That's a really interesting trajectory into this. And, and and I love sort of adapting where you needed to, right? And seeing the world through that lens, I'm sure, shaped a lot of things, even if you can't really put a finger on it or, or define it. But I th- actually think it was the first time I ever learned of you and your work was through one of the reconstructions that you did. It was a type of lycopod that I think it had hooks and it would have ambled over. That was really neat. And so when did the artistic side of like looking at plants, liking to draw different things become part of the way you actually did the science that you do? I mean, that stuff always blows my mind because it's like, 
I know a lot of people that are good scientists and I know a lot of people that are good artists. I know very few people that manage to get both of those talents. Yeah. It's, um, it's a fun, it's a funny world in a way because yeah, I, within the, the field of paleobotany and working with sort of past plant life and, and fossils and stuff, there's, there's an unusual concentration of these sort of dual talented artists mm. who are, are also scientists. So a lot of paleobotanists I've oddly found have this, this interesting combo, but they have to use it. Right. And, and for me, it became an essential thing because, and actually it really was coming to a, a head for me because when I was going through high school, I actually wanted to go to art school. I did not want to necessarily become a scientist. I was terrible in my science classes. Um, I did terribly in chemistry, physics, all those things, biology, terribly Jeez. for a little while. Yeah. I mean, my, my teacher was like, I know you're, you're good at this and pulled me out. I was like, you need to try a little harder. And after that pep talk, did a lot better. <laughs> good. Right on. <laughs> but, um, you know, what, what I found to be the big, I guess like it was almost like an existential crisis in a way mm. artistically for me was coming through high school. I was trying to do these photorealistic illustrations, you know, very large, I don't know, color pencil sort of representations of all sorts of animals and plants. And then I was realizing, well, if I bust out my digital camera, even my point and shoot, I can take a picture that's like superior to what I can draw right now. Mm. Like I can catch a lot of these, these colors and shades that would take me like a year to get down by hand. And then I could take a million pictures of it. <laughs> so I was like, what's the point of me doing these photorealistic drawings and trying to like capture like so faithfully these forms when I can just photograph them. And I know that a lot of artists would definitely beg to defer in the entire field of like scientific illustration. It, it exists and has a very rightful place. Sure. We do need to be able to represent yes. forms and be able to communicate artistically and visually. But for me, I wanted to challenge myself to capture these things in ways people hadn't seen them before. Mm. And I couldn't do that with a living organism very well. I mean, I might be able to emphasize some things, but not like in a groundbreaking sort of way, or at least a way that I was feeling satisfied with as right. some sort of artist is always challenging myself. So fossils were, and fossils in it extinct things things that nobody gets to see <laughs> but you have to like really get into the world of and the mindset of to study those became like the mecca for me in a way yeah artistically speaking because these are these things in these worlds that have just been lurking in the back of my head for as i'm studying these fossils for gosh you know long long hours you know trying to communicate what i see and and how i'm feeling like this plant actually may have been, has been like just an amazingly really fun sort of challenge for me. Yeah. And it motivates me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it amazes me the most because of that combination of skill sets. But I, I think a lot of it is born out of necessity, uh, be, as you kind of hinted at, because you're looking at this old ancient record of an organism. It could be an impression. It could be sort of the geologic memory of the compounds that once made up actual living tissues now it's just geologic mineral materials but it's never really perfect and that's the thing that always frustrates me because i could spend hours in a museum and and get an idea of what this organism was but there's always that part of me that's like but how did it really look what was the texture what might it felt like and that's, I think, what really blows my mind the most is the ability of scientific illustrators, especially in the paleo world, because they are able to take this forensic investigation level of detail and actually make something meaningful out of it. I mean, that to me is the most amazing thing. 
at the at what you can look at and then go, oh no, this is squished down. It has to go over here now and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely one of the most. I, I feel like it's one of the most like riveting parts of of the job if you're one of those forensic investigators working in the past. Um, yeah, actually putting all the time together and the effort together to faithfully reconstructing these plants is really, I think, one of the the best parts of the job in a way. And and doing that really requires a lot of background work. Um, so, so much goes into trying to make any of these representations you see of a of an ancient plant. Um, and it also depends on on the time, too. So there's a long history and tradition of these fossil plants being reconstructed and there's very and very much like it, it's very much follows the same sort of story that, that dinosaurs for instance and, and ancient reptiles of many different groups have been reconstructed in that we've learned more and more over time and are have been fine-tuning uh, our understandings with every generation of scientists that revisits the questions and turns over the paradigms of yesterday but one of the things that really comes in is when you really want to make one of these faithful reconstructions, it takes it, it just takes an immense amount of work on on the background that nobody sees. <laughs> right, because I'd imagine you really have to understand the fossil itself, let alone comparing if you are lucky enough to have multiple specimens of that fossil, just the hours of, of spending time just looking, let alone trying to understand what each part was where the orientation might have been and then interpreting some of that especially if it's a more elaborate fossil and you know I, yeah that that emphasis on the hours of time and effort you don't see when you get a finished product it's one thing to appreciate wow that's a beautiful piece of art and it's meaningful in a biological context but boy <laughs> endless amounts of time <laughs> scrutinizing stressing and trying to figure out what is right and what is where it's okay to take that artistic license. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's something that it's difficult to sort of communicate through the picture itself. So, you know, if you see, if you see a reconstruction that'll come out with, you know, a new species that's discovered or something like that, um, you know, a lot of times it'd be like, Oh, well, yeah, that looks like a big leafy magnolia or something like that. <laughs> it's like, Oh no, no, no. They po contraire. That's not exactly. Exactly that. And they, they really put a lot of effort into those minute details that do distinguish it, that no living, let's say in this, this hypothetical, there's no living magnolia that has all those traits. Right. Um, it, it looks, it looks like something that you'd see today, but there's like something very slightly off about it yeah. in many of the cases of these extinct plants. And that's that slight, there's always what we call, um, the pull of the present is, mm. is a constant tug of war when you're trying to reconstruct the past and basically seeing the world around us as we see it today and figuring that everything kind of looks the way it does today. If things in the past would have looked like they, like a lot of the living things today, that's sort of an assumption that we have, but it's not necessarily true because we're, we're dealing with entirely different planets, really. I mean, it's almost as if you were space traveling because the world is changing. You know, the, the atmosphere <laughs> is different. The continents are different. All of the just entire stage is changing. And so the rules change and things don't always need to be exactly like they do today. And when I talk about that, that sort of principle becomes a lot more, I think, 
a, a much bigger wild card when you're in the field of, of trying to reconstruct large animals that are extinct, like dinosaurs sure. and such, where if you don't have the right fossil material and you don't have the right evidence, you don't know exactly what colors they are sometimes. I mean, you can infer. Sure. You might not always have a mummified dinosaur where you even have the skin texture. You, you just have to infer from other ones that are known. And then it becomes kind of this situation where you, you try and make it as reasonable as you can, but your audience might criticize the heck out of you if you decide <laughs> to take artistic license. Right. And an artistic license can be extremely variable in this, mm-hmm. in that you might decide, well, this dinosaur looks more like a turkey. Um, <laughs> in my view, it looks more like a turkey. So I'm going to reconstruct it more like a turkey. And everyone's like, no, of course it's not a turkey. And it's like, well, none of you were there. Right. So right. this artistic license is almost like, you know, it, it's not even really artistic license anymore. It's just that, well, I'm the one drawing it. So I... I kind of want it to look this way right. and, and they might actually be right. Who knows? Yeah. We, we don't really know. And I don't mean to trivialize that sort of that spectrum of it, but it sort of illustrates the idea that there isn't really a right and a wrong way to do a lot of reconstruction work um, in some of these groups of organisms because our, our knowledge, as you were saying, is so patchy. Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine there's a function of how old the fossil is you're looking at. I, you know, if you look at like a Miocene or Eocene plant that might actually have modern relatives, well, there you have a frame of reference to at least sort of hook your idea on and then go from there. But you seem to tend to really function in these 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 worlds that are so ancient that truly, like you said, it's essentially a different planet. And I, I, I hinted at this with Dr. Dahl as he was kind of outlining what the Devonian was like. I mean, we always joke about taking that time machine back, but I always picture us stepping out of it and then immediately collapsing because we can't live in that atmosphere. Like the rules of physics are still there, but you can't think of a different kind of a more different kind of atmosphere and, and situation going on uh, to, to really try to pull from. And, and unfortunately, today you have very few representatives still alive to actually reference to even think about getting it in that ballpark and so do you think there's an extra added challenge as you move farther back in time with these sorts of these reconstructions absolutely i think the further and further in the past you go the harder and harder it becomes and our frame of reference becomes just further and further away exactly what you're saying before it is a lot easier if you can stake something that has a nearest living relative that's very close to it and it's geologically young. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, the geologic time, I mean, is a very different span than, you know, most of us even really comprehend. So you know, relative. We're studying it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's so relative. I yeah. mean, yeah, once you get back really far, you're going to a world where, I mean, I, I tell people that some of the worlds that I work with, with the Devonian, for instance, it's a world before shade was invented. <laughs> so Dang. how do you even conjure that world like yeah and this was a time when like small spiders and scorpions were the dominant predators across the planet like there weren't any like animals with backbones on land i mean it's just it's such a strange place and it's one i infinitely would love to take a time machine to and and collapse maybe and (laughs) one one gasp get to see but (laughs) you know how do you tackle that it's a really good question and yeah there are very few representatives that you get to work with, but there are there are traits that I see that sometimes will hearken to these plants I know. When I look in the fossil record at, say, one of these Devonian plants, 
I might see a glimpse or a glimmer of something I've actually seen in the greenhouse. And that's mm. always for me, like one of the really crazy things because there's times where, I mean, and this is the really fun part, at least when, when growing plants and working in horticulture, for instance, uh, in roles I've had and what I do outside of work these days is that I'll, I'll like uproot a plant and I'll look at it and I'll be like, whoa, I've seen a fossil 400 million years ago that was doing exactly the same thing as this one is doing right here. <laughs> this is really, really creepy. And, <laughs> you know, I, I haven't always had a camera on me to be like, I need to take a picture of this and I yeah. need to go publish this in nature or something. But like, you know, but you see these things. And especially if you're like one of these time traveling botanists, like it, it's out there. So you just your job as the artist is to try and piece together and make sense of the traits you're seeing and then find a way to. I guess most plausibly and logically put those traits together in a meaningful way mm. uh, in the past. Yeah. I like your emphasis on traits in large part because I'm a trait-based ecologist for so many years, but yeah. <laughs> I think this realization that physics drives and, and chemistry, you know, it's all part of yeah. it, but physics really drives how an organism develops and hearing you talk about it and i think especially from the paleo botanical perspective because that's really what you have left is a, a series of traits you get to describe and analyze to me taking a trait-based approach to any organism but especially a plant has, has fundamentally changed the way i look at the world and i can imagine adding the artistic element of trying to translate that has done something similar to your perspective on things especially as someone who is deeply deeply passionate about this subject because critical if you're dealing with the plant world and especially as you start traveling through time really it's the thing as you're saying like having the the guiding physics and plants only have so many ways of of attacking a problem be it today be it the devonian there's there's a there are constraints and knowing those sorts of constraints allows you to be able to try and, you know, basically make sense of the fossils. And it gives you really the, your one scaffolding of reference that you can hold on to mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And so more than really trying to, I guess, try and trying to make up what I'm seeing, like as, a, as an artistic fantasy, I try and stay with what I know as closely yeah. as possibly. And then say, this is very reasonable based on what I understand about how all these different lineages of plants that are the closest living equivalents that I can work with that are dealing with potentially similar environments, how do they react to a situation? How do they behave mm. specifically? And that's oftentimes what I try and do with a reconstruction is, is get into the, the metaphorical brain of a plant, which doesn't have a brain <laughs> or a nervous system, but like how does a plant like deal with this world and what keeps it up at night? <laughs> and I mean, it really is a strange meditative exercise when sure. I, when I, I guess when I talk about it, but <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, You're in the you right know. audience for this though. So keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, exactly. It's, um, absolutely traits, traits are key. Um, and, and a lot of times I, I find, I find that, that people who have, have tried to sort of, um, well, I mean, plants we're dealing with, with, plant blindness as well. And when mm -hmm. we go in the fossil record, we get even more blind to the plants in right. some ways sometimes. Right. Um, and we're lucky that the Devonian is one of the few times where you don't really have any animals to distract you on land <laughs> if you're an artist. <laughs> it has to be about the plants and rocks yep. and clay, basically. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a wonderful place for a botanist in a way. <laughs> That's a great point to make. Uh, 
But, you know, on average, and I'm sure, again, the variation on the theme is is quite vast, especially depending on the, the preservation. But when you are faced with reconstructing a, a species from the fossil record, on average, how much time would you say you spend with the fossil itself before you even really start to put pen or stylus to the media that you're going to be using? Well, I would say that, yeah, for the the ones that I have reconstructed, it's been years, Dang. like literally years of work wow. where I've been. So I, I did a reconstruction of a, a early Devonian uh, lycophyte that had these hook like crazy complex leaves uh, years back. And that one, I think I spent most of my undergraduate wow. like career studying that plant. I mean, I had all these other things going on at the time, but sure. I. But but that I was looking at those fossils all the time and doing all these crazy measurements on them. And the what came out was literally I decided to take this approach where we, we did use a technique called morphometrics, where you're taking the measurements of traits. So characteristics that you see in the fossil of a plant. In this case, you can do morphometrics on modern plants, too. Hmm. But since we're dealing with fossils and we can't compare compare their um, molecular sort of make you know, the genetic or molecular sort of data, we're stuck dealing with morphology. Right. And, and especially in the Devonian, you don't have a lot of traits to work with because <laughs> most of the plants look like tuning forks. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a rendition of tuning forks and zigzags and lightning bolts <laughs> most of the time. Everything's dichotomizing. So yeah. it's just finding a different way to dichotomize. So when I was uh, an undergraduate, I, I came across this fossil at a quarry when I just was starting paleobotany and I found this this light lycopod in this rock, a fragment of it. And I said, you know, this one looks really different than the other ones. Um, I wonder if it's a different species. Hmm. And I was asking my professor and she's like, that's a great question. You know, there, there's some ways we could probably attack this. Let's let's try and do some measurements. And so, you know, I. I decided, okay, well, well, we'll ask some people about it. We sent it, sent pictures off to other scientists. And they said, nah, it looks, looks like this common thing, whatever. And I was like, I don't agree with you as an artist. I, <laughs> I, I look at this stuff all the time. I'm obsessed. Yeah. Like this is not, I'm not convinced. So I was like, let's do the measurements. So about maybe three years later of measuring, you know, hundreds right. of these specimens, like every little leaf and their angles and how there is, you know, inserted, we were able to, Re basically construct these clouds of data points that we're measuring in morpho space or wow. basically on trajectories of, of the traits, how variable they were and whether the degrees of variation between these different known species overlapped in their traits with the one that I was convinced was a different one. And we found that they were radically different. Hmm. Um, they were in fact so different that when we did these, I did these same measurements with a whole suite of modern lycophytes to ground the technique to see whether we could use this to actually distinguish modern club moss species in general. Mm. And we found that the same degree that we have between the two species was between genera and modern club mosses. Wow. So it wasn't even just like, oh, it's just a little different. No, it, it could be it has the same degree of difference as different genera um, in the present. And so I was like, Okay, you know, take that in your pipe and smoke it, scientists. But, <laughs> you know, first, this isn't like, you know, I don't know, Nobel Prize type work by any means. It's just, it, it was really cool for me. Yeah. But, but that sort of work and that sort of attention to detail that I was having to do already, I was like, well, heck, when I do this paper, I should probably try and depict what this thing looked like. Right. And so, 
I then was was going, well, okay. I started with pen and paper and I started drawing it like my kitchen table or something. And and I was realizing ah, this just looks wrong. Like this drawing <laughs> just looks wrong. And I'm doing every busting every move I think I've got artistically. And I'm just going off, you know, this is what's in my mind. Yeah. Not even looking at the fossil necessarily. A little <laughs> bit, maybe glancing at pictures. I'm like, this is how I imagine it. And I was like, and I can't do paleo fantasy. This is not right. <laughs> so I went back to the math. Nice. I went back to the data we had and I was like, you know what? I'm going to look at all these angles and stuff and I'm going to average them out and make a non-distorted, you know, fake fossil on the computer hmm. and then try to convert it from two dimensional to three dimensional based on the angles of the spirals along there. And when I went through all the work of doing this, um, what resulted was I ended up going into a vector program, Adobe Illustrator, and nice. just doing these vectors and creating this crazy vectorized plant <laughs> that was just, it looked like, I don't know, it just looked like something on acid. It was crazy <laughs> looking. And it was totally not what my artistic you know, mind was thinking this plant would look like. It was way crazier sure. than anything I could have imagined. And it was only through that that we were able to figure out this plant. Well, this this lycophyte was really unusual for most of these plants only have these needle-like leaves or these uni, you know, they have a single vein going through their leaves usually. It's very mm. simple. But this thing, it was called Leclercia, had these crazy pronghorn ibis head-like, <laughs> you know, strange animal-like leaves. And they had, you know, their leaves divided into many nasty spines that were coming out in like almost every direction hmm. and i always had been weirded out by that why why are like fights evolving these complex leaves in the early devonian yeah and then when i oriented them on the branch i found they interlocked basically oh, and so wow. they created this crazy cloud of spines that in every conceivable angle you would get jabbed if you went toward this plant <laughs> and it was just it was crazy. So it almost, it came out looking more like a glass sponge that an animal, marine animal than a plant. And <laughs> I just was confused. So, yeah. so it really changed just the way I was reconstructing or, or starting to look at trying to reconstruct plants. I was just like, okay, I got to do a lot of homework before I go back and yeah. try and redo this authentically. I love the sort of feedback that was happening in that process. And it just goes to show you, it's not just, ah, I'm going to draw it the way I think it is. There's so many iterations to getting to something that you can call a complete project. But you learn a lot about the organism in the process of doing this. I mean, just looking at the angles of the leaves and, and, and the way they're oriented, that brings up so many new questions. They're like, why, why did it have to look like this? What selection pressures pushed it this direction i mean that to me is an incredible output of an artistic endeavor yeah it really was and it it, it surprised me yeah because i didn't set out to learn more from the drawing necessarily i was just like i want a pretty picture of the plant to just have it there as an example <laughs> and i was like whoa whoa no and we were thankfully not yet you know submitted or anything so yeah. by the time i re complete the reconstruction we had time to discuss, oh my gosh, this plant was doing all this crazy stuff and we would have never known this from the fossils. Um, so there is a real, I would say, based on that experience, there's a real power to scientific illustration actually being a way to actually inform science yeah. and create new understandings. And on that note too, in more recent years and working with um, folks actually 
working on reconstructing Devonian climates, mm. I'm starting to realize that how we reconstruct plants is extremely important to how people modeling atmospheres are looking at the world and the inputs to their models actually depend on those artistic representations, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. And that's super exciting because, you know, we can't get in that time machine and go back and look, but really important things were happening back then. I mean, it's setting the stage for everything that has happened since, right? And at the same time, there's a lot of things that can be said about current and future projections for what our own climate is doing and how we might fare in the long run. But, you know, on a the previous episode to this one, I talked to Dr. Dahl, and this is who you've been working with recently, looking at sort of this change in orthodoxy or upsetting of orthodoxy of what the Devonian climate was like during this time period when plants were moving onto land. Like you said, shade had not been invented. This is pre-forest. And it's not enough to just look at the plants, but also think about the context of these plants, what was going on at that time. And that's where the big upset has come from, scientifically speaking, is that you know, we're told that this area was a hothouse, swampy. It's a really just nothing like it today to no, it Actually, it's probably a lot like today, a lot cooler. And a lot of this was happening before trees even came onto the scene. And so when you're approached with something like that, it's not just about picking a plant. It's about putting that plant in context. Where do you how did that all begin for you as the <laughs> artist? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it's definitely a it's a bit of a conundrum for sure. Uh, trying to basically make sense of, yeah, this changing paradigm, if you will, of what that Devonian climate actually was like, it, it does influence how you reconstruct those plants. Um, yeah. And in, in my situation, we, we sort of expected that the Devonian was exactly what you're saying, this swampy sort of world. You'll see a lot, endless reconstructions if you do a nice little Google search of the early Devonian of these just swampy river margins with plants just you know festooned on and everywhere just whole meadows of these weird early land plants but the way you know working with at least dr doll's group you know at least having conversations about them we we really had a lot of sort of discussions about what what exactly are these plants doing back then mm -hmm. and what is you know are we, do we really have this right? Right. Because they were finding with their data already that the CO2 levels were so much lower as, as you, you both have discussed before than, you know, what was expected, but the same goes for the plants. And, and that's where sort of, I come in with this is that I feel that to the same degree that we got the atmosphere wrong, we got the plants wrong. And we still have the plants wrong <laughs> in ways. I, I, I really do think that. And I, I don't know that for sure for all of our plants. There's certainly many different plants that have been really well reconstructed and we have great deposits. So the Rhiney chert is really the, mm. you know, in, in, in Scotland, I believe is, is the, the sort of Mecca for understanding as cellular three dimensional level, what these plants looked like. But when you start moving away from Rhiney and you start, getting into these places where you just have two dimensional compression fossils, you're dealing with fragments most of the time. Yeah. Um, so it's very rare that we get a glimpse of a whole plant reconstruction. There have been a few. Right. And those have, every time one of those has been discovered, it's just totally turned things on its head um, about what we thought about that plant before. Yeah. I've seen some of these in person. I come from the land of Devonian shale deposits and you yeah. really do just see these little fragments. So you're like, I, 
I can tell you that was probably plant material, but what it belonged to, what the context of it was, how big it was, is that's the part that blows my mind is is when you are trained in paleobotany or really any paleontology, the, the eye you get for these intricately minute, almost unseeable details sometimes, uh, and, and being able to infer what that structure was, where it might have fit, and, and if you are lucky and you hit the gold mine, you find a few pieces that might have, uh, well, this was attached to something like this. How do you begin to even start to pick a plant for this project, to, to put it into context? Because A, you're dealing with probably more fragments than can be described, and B, you know, a, a suite of different organisms that are plenty good fodder, but you kind of have to work with what you have, I'd imagine. So, yeah, that's another really good question, because when I was basically we I I went out and visited uh, um, Dr. Dahl in Copenhagen, I think, last summer. And and we uh, uh, well, we got to talking about this, this study that was coming up that he and his group were put was putting out. And he's like, you know, Jeff, I really I really want to see what a vision of this world looks like. Like now that we're publishing this, like. I really want to see it. Like, you know, could, you know, would you be interested in like actually trying to take a stab at reconstructing what this Devonian world looks like now mm-hmm. based on this new information? I mean, I jumped at the opportunity. I was like, Oh yeah, this sounds crazy. Sweet. And in fact, this is not only that, this is so consistent with all these observations I see with modern Leica fights. This world makes a heck of a lot more sense to me now. Hmm. Now that you've basically put these things together at the CO2 levels, I'm like, yeah, because I mean, one thing, for instance, is that modern lycophytes, they do not like growing in steam baths. They do not like hot <laughs> temperatures. They do not like really, really swampy, muggy, still still air situations. They like being in awesome places to do field work. They yes. love being at the mid-elevations of tropical mountains, paramos, <laughs> just places where it's nice and breezy and you can take a jog out there. And uh, I mean, like every time I see lycophytes, I'm usually in, in a pretty place, I mean, Either that or you're out strolling in the woods, you know, in, in the East Coast in a hardwood forest. And they're, yeah. they're lovely places to be a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can confirm. <laughs> but they're not these sort of swampy little, I don't know, like alligator plants or something. Like they're just. Yeah, you're not the uh, Thakahatchee. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And, and there certainly are some that can take to those conditions. Like I think of our, you know, our bog club mosses and things like that. Sure. But they're not really the norm for the whole group. Um. And so, yeah, when when Tice was uh, Tyson, Dr. Dahl was basically saying this, I was like, OK, well, let's now do a little makeover on the plants, too. So mm. we're going to do a makeover of this planet. Now I'm going to really try and take a stab at what these plants look like, because when we were talking, I was I was feeling like we have all these really beautiful paintings of these early lycophytes that were around at the time, but they don't really give a sense of what we probably see in these fossil fragments they're they're really extrapolations many times of Mm. oh yeah this little you know you know five centimeter chunk must have been a part of a tree basically it's like (laughs) not necessarily sure you don't have the beginning and the end of that branch yeah yeah (laughs) you don't know if this is upright if this is down if this is underground sometimes even yeah yeah that's true um and and we've known lycophytes from this time to do all three so they conquer the air, they go underground, they scramble. And then not only that, I mean, they're shapeshifters too. The modern ones will change the leaf shapes and just dive into the ground and go burrow like a worm and then <laughs> divide and then pop up like a hydra, like somewhere else with a totally different type of foliage. Nice. It's just, you know, yeah. And when, when you see that with these modern things and then you see these fossils, 
you really have to pause. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I basically was like, okay, I need to go as conservative as I can because I'm like, okay, we, our, our goal was we want to put a lycophyte on there because that was the group of plants that were being measured. Mm. These early lycophytes and modern uh, phlegmariuris, these, these epithetic or tree dwelling fir mosses today and greenhouses were being used to sort of develop their proxy for mm. looking at these CO2 levels. So, Drapanophycus was the uh, genus of this extinct lycophyte that was to task. Hmm. And there are some conundrums because this, this plant, Drapanophycus, is, is this almost ubiquitous plant around the world about 400 million years ago. It's basically on every continent. And they look pretty similar everywhere you, you, you find them. But again, as you said, most places you're going, you're finding fragments. Right. You're not finding a full plant. And what makes it really difficult is Drapanophycus is a giant. It is an absolutely bizarre, gigantic plant on a landscape where its competition is probably like two or three centimeters tall. <laughs> and it's the size of a timber bamboo. What on wow. earth is it doing? So we talk about Prototaxides, this giant sort of, you know, fungal organism, fungal-like organism in the Devonian as this outlier. I'm like, no, 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 no. Drapanophycus is already doing this. Um, <laughs> this is a lycophyte that already was doing this long before. And, um, we don't even talk about it. Right. Um, and so it's this giant sort of balloon plant that's kind of everywhere and has spines all over it, but no leaves. Um, so I basically had to figure out, well, what did it really look like? Um, and looking at previous reconstructions, everyone described, described it as a shrub. Basically it's, Hmm. it's this big bushy thing with these coral, like it's basically like if you took, um, a Huperzia, a little, uh, fur moss that you would see you know, hiking out in the Appalachians or something like that, or a, a terrestrial phlegmarius fur moss from the Paramo mm. in South America. And then you just spliced it onto one of these uh, fanning club mosses from the Northeast. So like a heart, like something like Diphasiastrum, um, what they call ground cedar. Yeah. And and you can see where these where the scientists were kind of thinking the artists were, were, were drawing inspiration from this when you look at this and I'm like but but that's not the fossil again that's what I was doing originally I was like oh I just want to make a fanciful plant and then I I knowing the the modern ones I, I knew I failed because I was like I'm not convinced by this this doesn't look real I mean I've seen like fights do weird things but this doesn't look real yeah so for Drapanophycus I was actually at quite a loss for a little while uh, it took me months to really put together what what I felt this plant was going to be. And that was drawing upon fossils from all over the world. I mean, I wasn't necessarily going out and visiting museums, sure, but I had a lot of images from a lot of different papers that were showing different parts of the plant. Nice. And then was able to put it together. And what I found was that it was just not at all like, again, what I thought it would be because these things we think of them as having these little simple spines all over them, but there are members of this, this genus Drapanophycus that have these gigantic, almost leaf blade, like what we call enations or these, these sort of extensions of the outermost tissues that look Hmm. just like leaves. So it's almost hard to distinguish them from some of these like bog club mosses. If you were to look at them from a distance and the fossils just look spitting image of these, you know, what we call, you know, the, the genus Lycopodiella has a lot of things that look a lot like it, Yeah, but they're not true leaves. And as exactly as we're looking at traits, it's not a leaf, <laughs> but it's another part of the plant's acting as a leaf. Yeah. So 
Um, so Drepanophycus is doing this, but is doing this like on a gigantic scale. So it's like if you took your little club moss that you see out on a forest walk and you blew it up into, again, timber bamboo thick stems. Dang. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. So. So, yeah, I basically was like, OK, well, I'll think about how the plant is. And the other thing that, that came to mind with it was, you know, where do we draw the plants in the Devonian? Right. Where are they all in the past? We think about them and, and a lot of when we talk about plant evolution, we talk about plants came from the water. Right. And that, well, since they came out of water, they the earliest plants were probably bryophytes and their relatives and such. And they didn't have these lignified tissues for transporting plumbing water and nutrients to their systems. So they were bound to water and you, they couldn't be anywhere away. Mm -hmm. Anyone you talk to studies bryophytes will viciously... <laughs> <laughs> viciously put this down has happened and to me can confirm rightfully so <laughs> <laughs> i have fallen like, into that trap <laughs> and and it is and it's a great thing because yeah i, I have to say if you really want to be have a good conversation if you're not studying bryophytes talk to find someone who studies bryophytes because they will they will denounce every consideration you have on what makes a plant a plant <laughs> because bryophytes have done it all. They got vascular tissues. They do have vascular tissues. They do have ways of mining things from underground. They have, you know, they've done all these things. Heresy. So anyway, the, the, yeah. So, so this sort of view that, well, plants had, were like frogs, basically. They were stuck with the water. They couldn't go any further. That actually, what was really crazy was, um, I mean, I, I was talking to Dr. Dahl and colleagues on the team about this when they were you know, working on some models. And I was like, you know, these plants are probably also in other places too. Sure. They're, they're not just around the water. And if you ever go hiking out, you'll notice that most of these club mosses, they don't just grow in water. Yeah. And they don't a lot. Of, I mean, they can, but they usually don't. They're, they're often growing on mountainsides. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll find them high up on places. And I'm like, why don't we draw like Drapanophycus on a mountainside or above a river valley or somewhere in the uplands? And so I decided to do that for this. And part of me felt a little guilty because it's like, this is based on pole the present in many ways. And no, I haven't been walking around the Devonian, so I don't know why we were doing this. Damn you. But literally the day after we put out this reconstruction, there was a study published out of China that found Drapanophycus growing on uplands. Yes. Above a river margin. Yes. <laughs> and right on the slope, possibly. And I, I looked at, they had like plotted these little X's all over, you know, here's this prehistoric river and here's where they were up on the ridges right over the river. I was like, oh my God, that's what we did. I just reconstructed one <laughs> over a glacial river valley. It was bizarre. Amazing. And I just sent it right to Dr. Daw. I was like, oh my God, we were right. We did it. It was a day after it got published and went out into the press. So, that's amazing. That's weird stuff. But, yeah. But, yeah. Well, I think it's confirmation of just how much attention and thought and, and really experience you and your colleagues have brought to the table. And it's not this whimsical, I just want to, like you said, create a fantastical thing that no one's ever seen, because of course it's different. It's 400 plus million years ago. It's yeah. working with the evidence. It's putting a lot of pieces together. And oftentimes, quite literally, you have to look at different pieces of fossils that have been described elsewhere and say, okay, well, if this went here, then this had to come over here kind of deal. But it, it's... It's so cool when you get those moments in science where many lines of evidence come together to confirm something that was, you know, started as a hunch or a hypothesis. And I think Dr. Dahl's results are a lot like that as well. Like this whole process 
of describing this paleo climate, this condition for this plant and what the plant was doing. Like so many iterations of all the pieces came together and you can feel so much better from a scientific peer review, especially prospect of, hey, we got about as close as we're going to get to this sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And the only closer I could get is, I mean, I, my, my partner would, would absolutely wants to strangle me after going through this entire process because she works at home as I do. And, um, yeah, when I was going through this, I think one of the hardest things for me to do was depict clay. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to illustrate clay is, I think, one of the most challenging artistic feats on the planet. And I really think because it's just you want to draw a solar system. Yeah, make that, but with texture. <laughs> and it's like, you know, uh. <laughs> and that's what it is. So so anyway, yeah, there's there's ways to do it, but you just have to get infinitely detailed. And yeah, I, I really want to do that again someday. <laughs> that's exciting. Well, hopefully someone listening will say, hey, Jeff, come on over. We have a new fossil for you to put into context yeah. for us. But yeah, and, and talk about appreciation. I mean, it's one thing to piece together this plant that, you know, hypothetically hasn't had a solid, meaningful reconstruction done on it, but also to be putting it in the context of this incredible study that Dr. Dahl and his colleagues have put together and really understand something about that world in a much deeper way, in a much more nuanced way. I mean, I think we're a lot alike. We love these stories. We love our origin on this planet of like, what is life doing? How different was it? And to how to have a scientifically accurate picture now is is really refreshing. Yeah, it really is. And I find the pictures that that are coming out of these understandings and these nuances are far more beautiful Agreed. of a world than we ever could have imagined. I mean, now I really want to go back to the Devonian. <laughs> I mean, crap, crap. Those plants were probably just glowing back then. Yeah. Like it was is a very different place, but but the, the fun part is it in some ways it had a lot of commonalities as we're finding with now we've got snow capped mountains and glaciers probably early in the Devonian and probably would have been a really fun place to hike if you could deal with the higher CO2 levels. <laughs> but it, it's better. I mean, dealing with 600, was it parts per million versus 4,000 parts per million? I'll take my bets with 600 over 4,000, yeah, but still doable. It's a little more doable, yeah. but bring oxygen tanks. <laughs> yeah, still bring an oxygen tank. It's kind of like how hot, how many Scovilles is that pepper? Like, oh. how dead do you really want to be with that pepper? Right. I There's a point where it's just pain. <laughs> just yeah. pain after that <laughs> level. <laughs> oh, that's really exciting. And so, you know, with that in mind, how often are you just finding yourself looking at a, a couple papers on a fossil that, you know, no one's called you up or, or talked about, like, do you, do you spend time just kind of honing your skills on having fun on, on worlds that we'll never know? <laughs> I, I do a lot more of that these days. So Good. sometimes I'll, I'll help. There's, there's situations where if folks are, are reconstructing something like, you know, if they're people I know are doing like documentaries or something, I'll, they'll, they'll call me up and be like, is this, is this looking okay? And I'll be like, well, I'm actually, you know, I'll just storyboard the whole thing. I'm like, this is how it grew. And this is the process <laughs> I mean, based on everything we know about their everything phylogenetically related to them. I mean, this is what it probably had to do uh, within those confines. Um, and I just, yeah, I delight in any time that I can help sort of inform just, you know, it's, yeah, being able to help in those processes and people accurately communicating what these things looked like. 
it's just something I'll never grow tired of. But yeah. I feel like it's really it's very important at the end of the day because, at you know, when we, as I was saying earlier, like how we reconstruct our climates. In the example of the Devonian, we we imagine that these lycophytes were shrubs. Yeah. And when you input shrubs into a CO two model versus I don't know this ground covering little wiry thing, it does give you a little bit of a different outcome in terms of how much CO2 is being drawn down by these plants. So, yeah. so it's, yeah, it, it was a time where I was like, oh, well, that's profound. I didn't think that how people were drawing plants back in the Victorian eras would actually kind of screw us up today. <laughs> when we're trying to fight climate change and that, huh. oh yeah, those people back then they, they had it. They had done great meticulous study, but this is a very fanciful illustration and we're going to need a different baseline for our models. Sure. Well, even from an understanding, a public, a greater understanding of this stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of this work does kind of fit into this esoteric kind of off the beaten path journey that yeah. most of the general public is not going on. But what I love about the work that you do and anyone that recreates ancient extinct organisms and, and ecosystems is you you make it more tangible. You make it more digestible and approachable. I know for me, I I don't have the eye. I love looking at fossils, but again, I don't have that eye to go, well, this is exactly what it must have looked like. And so the first thing I always do is see if there's a reconstruction of it to at least put it into context. And so thank you, because you make our lives richer as a result of all of this great science is being done. Let's amplify it let's put that exclamation point on it and that's what i think you've done here for this amazing work that uh, you've collaborated on with with dr doll and his colleagues thank you so much yeah, yeah. man of course <laughs> well thank you so much for talking to us about it and detailing this process and, and and kind of shining a light on a very intricate and scientifically important and informed process but if people listening want you to reconstruct something they're trying to understand in the fossil record or just learn more about your work and the work of your colleagues, where do you recommend they find out more? Sure. So you can find me on uh, social media. I'm on, um, I think, at Jeff Benka on um, uh, a couple different feeds, if it's Twitter, Instagram, if I can remember correctly. But um, yeah, I post all sorts of plant pictures and such. Indeed so you do. Yeah, so if you want to have, you know, a like a fight brick blitzkrieg on your your email <laughs> or whatever, yeah, just you know where to go. <laughs> Excellent. And again, I'll save everyone the trouble of trying to find that themselves. I'll put up links to everything, but Jeff, again, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. I really appreciate it and of course, it's always a pleasure getting to talk with you and learn about your process. Anytime. It's always a pleasure, Matt, and thanks so much for having me on. Of course, anytime. Cheers. All right. All right. How amazing was that? It is always a pleasure to talk with and learn from Dr. Banka. And I really thank him for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. Of course, all of the relevant things that we discussed today can be found in the show notes for this episode. And if you haven't listened to it yet, go back one week and listen to my episode with Dr. Tice Dahl about what it took to understand this ecosystem and the plants that lived in it. It's fascinating stuff that has a lot of implications for how we look at our climate and our ecosystems moving into the future. Once again, if you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting it. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, or you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. All of those links are found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. So you don't have to remember it, pull over or get out of the shower to write this sort of stuff down. Speaking of support, a big thank you goes out to our latest producer, Nicole. Nicole recently signed up at the producer credit level over at patreon.com slash plants. So they are doing the max they can each and every month 
to help make sure this show has a future. Thank you, Nicole, and thank you to all of my patrons as well. As always, thank you all for listening. That is it for me this week. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.